are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased uh, if you can join me for today's Thursday afternoon question and answer time. Right now, it's about 12 o'clock noon Pacific time on the West Coast of the United States. I don't know what time zone it is that you're in that you're reaching us with live or either that or recorded later on, uh, but I'm glad that you could join us one way or another. What we do on Thursday afternoons, as God gives us the opportunity, is uh, I come together and give an hour or so of my time for a question and answer opportunity. And basically, it can be whatever questions you have about the Bible, about the Christian life, um, about anything else you can ask me about. I'm not going to say that I have an answer for you, and I certainly don't have every answer to every Bible question or every question about the Christian life, but I'll do the best that I can, and I certainly enjoy these times that we can have together. I hope you do as well. What we're talking about here on this particular Thursday afternoon is we begin with a lead question, a lead question that comes in from uh, social media, leftover from the previous week, from our TWR360 audience. And I want to give a big greeting to our TWR360 audience uh, who has tuned in now, and we're very grateful for our partnership with that ministry. You might be watching right now on Uh, YouTube, you might be watching on Facebook, Uh, whoever you are, wherever you're coming from, we're very pleased to have you. And we always enjoy it if in the live chat, you let us know where you're watching or listening from, just because uh, we're delighted to have a global reach, whatever reach God gives us, we're delighted to have it. This particular lead question is a little bit unusual uh, because it's not strictly a Bible question. It's not strictly a question about the Christian life. It's a question about my Bible commentary. Now, uh, I have a written Bible commentary on the entire Bible. Every book, every chapter, every verse in some way or another. Obviously, I don't have something insightful or explaining to say about every verse, but it's a pretty complete Bible commentary. And there are some people who find it useful. It's been out on the internet now uh, for more than 25 years And I'm very grateful for this unusual ministry that God has given me uh, quite by accident. I never set out to be a Bible commentator, but I'm delighted with this ministry that I have. So this question comes from Kim, who wrote to us on Facebook. And Kim asks this particular question. She says, "Uh, I have used and greatly appreciated David Guzik's commentaries for many years. In finishing the commentary on Leviticus this morning, I found this sentence. Melchizedek was praised when he gave Abraham a tithe of all, and then the reference is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 4 through 10. Again, uh, that's my comment that she's quoting from the commentary on Leviticus chapter 27. So Kim asks this question, am I mistaken in understanding that in fact Abraham was blessed when he tithed to Melchizedek? So what Kim is saying, very gently, very properly here is, hey, David, didn't you get it wrong? Because in your commentary, you say that Melchizedek was praised when he gave Abraham a tenth of all. That's what you say in your commentary. But wasn't it the other way around? Okay, let's uh, take a look at this just so we understand the question. Uh, Kim is making reference to my Bible commentary that you can find online at EnduringWord.com. Uh, That's the lead page that you see right there on the screen at EnduringWord.com if you have the interest to take a look at it. Of course, my commentary is also available. It's well-suited for mobile devices, and we have an app that presents the commentary in both English and Spanish, and a lot of people use the uh, commentary over the app or on a mobile device. Uh, So if you're interested in those things, if you're interested in knowing more about it, take a look at the video we did a couple weeks ago Uh, a year-end report for Enduring Word. It'll tell you more about the languages that we produce the commentary in, uh, the platforms we're on, the reach that we have, all of that. So anyway, Kim's question is specifically about my commentary on Leviticus chapter 27. And so I looked that up and highlighted the phrase that she was interested in. Um, 
Leviticus chapter 27, uh, commenting on these verses, it says, uh, while the New Testament does not command or emphasize tithing, it presents giving as a duty for God's people and does not speak negatively of tithing. Jesus approved of the careful tithing of the religious leaders of his day while rebuking them for what they left undone. And then now highlighted on your screen is the portion that Kim is asking about. Melchizedek was praised when he gave Abraham a tithe of all, and the reference there is from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 4 through 10. So what you just saw is the actual screenshot of my commentary that Kim is asking me about and saying, hey, David, didn't you get that wrong? Wasn't it, in fact, Abraham who was blessed when he tithed to Melchizedek? All right, Kim, I don't know if you're watching this live. I suspect not. Maybe you'll watch this later, uh, but I just want to let you know, Kim, you are absolutely correct. What I wrote, again, there's the reference to it there, right there on your screen. What, what I wrote was in error. I simply put the names Melchizedek and Abraham in the wrong place. You know, th these are things that happen when we're writing something. You, you know, you got two names in your mind and one goes in one place, another place goes the other place, and you just mix them up. You put one in the other place. Now, I do want to emphasize here that Leviticus chapter 27, in the section I'm talking about, deals with tithing and giving and how Israel was to give unto the Lord. And what I'm discussing there in my commentary is how we should consider giving and tithing from a old covenant perspective and a new covenant perspective. And so what I'm pointing out there in the broader commentary is that the New Testament does not command tithing. And I would also say that the New Testament does not even emphasize tithing. Um, but it does present giving as a duty for God's people. And the New Testament never speaks negatively of tithing. Never. It's never against the practice. And the few mentions it makes of it put it in a positive light. And what I'm drawing on is how in Hebrews chapter 7, Abraham tithed unto Melchizedek and God not only approved of it, God praised it. Abraham was blessed because of it. Well, in my commentary on Leviticus chapter 27, again, if you want to see it one more time, I'll show it to you. I say that Melchizedek was praised when he gave Abraham a tenth of all, when really it was just the other way around. Okay, so that's the bigger thing, but... um. I got it wrong in my commentary right there. So let me explain to you just a little bit how I think about errors and corrections in my Bible commentary. My Bible commentary is under constant revision and hopefully improvement. I mean, I'm trying to improve it. When I go through a book again, I try to make it better. Right now, I'm going through the book of Numbers again. Just last night, I finished my revisions on Numbers chapter 13. Today, I was taking a look at Numbers chapter 14. Uh, when I'm done with that, uh, we'll take those revisions in Numbers. I'll send them to a proofreader, and then we'll post them online and in our other avenues for the commentary. What's interesting about the mistake that Kim noticed is that it comes from a commentary that I most recently revised and had proofread. Folks, I got some great proofreaders out there. Uh, I, I don't know if Allison in Austria would ever uh, see this video, but Allison in Austria, you do an awesome job as our proofreader. But I want you to know, no proofreader checks or gets every correction. Uh, wh what I got back from our proofreader in Leviticus was much better. Uh, my proofreader caught a lot of mistakes that I made. But, but obviously, nobody's perfect. And, and therefore, we get suggested corrections all the time. Now, almost all the people, I'm very grateful for this, are really kind, just like Kim was. Did you remember how I described to you what Kim wrote? She began her question there or her comment on Facebook by saying, David, I've used and greatly appreciated David Guzik's commentaries for many years. Most every time, people are very kind. Look, every once in a while, I'll get a nasty remark, a nasty comment, but thankfully, those are very rare. Um, so most of the people are very kind, and they're just saying, hey, I noticed this. 
here's a misspelling, here's something wrong with the formatting. I think you might've switched these words. What's up with this? Now, how do I regard uh, these emails or, or notices on social media that I get saying, hey, David, you made a mistake in your commentary. You should correct this. Well, I, I gotta say, I think it's something good. One thing that's good about it is it helps, hopefully, work towards some humility in me. Look, uh, all of us should live humbly before the Lord and before other people. I can never get that verse out of my mind. It's repeated three times, once in Proverbs, once in James, and once in, oh, good heavens, uh, 1 Peter, isn't it? That God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Listen, we should all endeavor to walk in humility. And look, look uh, it's good for me. Whoa, you got that wrong. Whoa, you need to make a correction there. Whoa, isn't it obvious that you mixed up Abraham and Melchizedek there? How could you make such a mistake? Well, it's just, okay, David, you know, look, be humble about these things. So it makes me, I think, uh, at least gives me opportunities to work a little humility in my life. But I, I don't feel terrible about such mistakes. Uh, look, there's a lot of material in my commentary. If you were to put it all in a great big Word document, it would be something like 11,000 pages. And I think if my calculations are right, it's something like 4.2 million words in my commentary on the entire Bible. There's a lot of stuff there. I don't think for a moment that everything is, uh, is picture perfect in it. And thankfully, we have literally tens of millions of people every year who use the commentary. That's a lot of eyes, and people are going to notice things. Now, I'll be straightforward with you. I used to get a lot more down about these mistakes. I would get an email, oh, David, you mixed this up, you spelled this wrong, this doesn't make sense. And I would just kind of go, oh, this is awful. Maybe I should take the commentary down. You just get a lot more discouraged. But now I appreciate, number one, that we have such a big crowdsourced team of proofreaders. What a blessing that is. And I also appreciate, number two, that it just plain makes the commentary better. I mean, at the end of it all, isn't that what we're shooting for? We want something that is a good commentary, very helpful for people to use. And um, if it makes it a little bit better to notice the mistake where I switched up the names, Abraham and Melchizedek, and if we can make that change, wonderful. Now, let, let me tell you something right now. If you were to go to my commentary on Leviticus chapter 27 right now, you'll see the mistake in there. Uh, that's right now as I'm recording this. If you're watching this on video later, uh, probably the correction will be made. I I'll leave it up there another day or two, and then I'll make that correction online. Uh, I've already made the correction in the Word document that I sort of use as a master, and in a plain HTML file that we kind of follow along. That's kind of behind-the-scenes stuff that you don't really need to be concerned with. But that mistake is still up there. I just thought it would be kind of fun to leave it up there for a couple more days so that if you want to see, look at it. And then if you check back in a few days, you'll see that I've made the correction and we've switched it around uh, between Abraham and Melchizedek. And I do want to emphasize, we do have proofreaders who are really good, but nobody catches everything. And this includes works that are put out by major publishing houses. Friends, I, I'm in a room right here. You can, well, you can see behind me, but on the side over here, I mean, th there's, there's hundreds of books in this room. And, and I bet that if you were careful, you could go through and find a mistake or a few mistakes in every one of them. Punctuation, spelling, grammar, formatting, whatever. A word switched, you, you get what I mean. So in this sense, uh, my commentary has improved a lot over the years. But I have to say, I'm glad that I didn't wait for these proofreading improvements to put it out. I mean, what you see right now at EnduringWord.com or on the app or at Blue Letter Bible or whatever, it, it's much better than what went out on the internet 20 years ago or 25 years ago. But I'm still glad that I put it out 25 years ago, even though it was in much more of a rough form. 
because I'd like to think that it was helpful to some people back then. And uh, even given the mistakes that people will find time to time, like Kim, God bless you, Kim. Thank you for pointing it out. Um, It makes it better. So we do have a process. We have a procedure for making corrections uh, because the corrections need to go out in several places where we keep current versions of what we have. But again, I just want to say, Kim, thank you for pointing out the error. And um, I've already made the correction in a couple of our uh, places where we need to make it. But I'm going to leave it up on the website just for another couple of days. Just so if you want to have a little bit of fun, everybody, you can go to Leviticus chapter 7. Say, look at that. It's towards the end of the chapter. Look at that. David got that wrong. How could he uh, make such a mistake? Go ahead and take a look. It's fine with me. Okay, well, that's it for our lead question today. Now I'm going to look towards my messages and see what's being forwarded to me by Devin, our uh, moderator, Uh, You write the questions in the side chat or on the comments, I guess if you're here on Facebook, Devin forwards them to me and uh, we get through the questions here. So, okay, so number one, uh, this comes from YouTube, from Adonis. He says, does John 11.52 refer to the dispersion of spiritual Israel, physical Israel, or both? John 11.52 says, and not only for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Well, okay, Adonis, I'm thinking back a little bit more to the context of John chapter 11, and I'm pretty sure off the, you know, just off the top of my head, so to speak, Um, In John chapter 11, verse 52, that he really is speaking. Okay, this is speaking here about Caiaphas and the unknowing prophecy that he uh, made. I'm going to read starting back at verse 49, if you guys don't mind here. Um, It says, and one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Very fascinating. Caiaphas made this command, or made this uh, statement, I should say. It's not technically a command. Caiaphas made this statement uh, considering that in a cold-blooded, political, pragmatic sense, that it was better for one man to unjustly be put to death. He meant Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. Better for that than for the whole nation to suffer uh, under the Romans. Again, no doubt about it. Caiaphas meant that just as a purely pragmatic, coldly considered political calculation. However, when he said, it's better for one man to die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish, This is John's comment about this, verse 51. Now, he did not say this on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now, when John mentions the nation in verse 51, he's talking about Israel, that Jesus would die for Israel. However, I'm not going to say that John caught himself, but he wanted to be very clearly understood that he didn't think that Jesus died only for Israel. That's why he adds on in verse 52, and Adonis, this is what you're speaking of. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Adonis, what's that is speaking about there in verse 52? That's speaking the nation, I think, is literal, tribal, ethnic Israel, And what he mentions in verse 52, the children of God who were scattered abroad uh, refers to the the Gentiles who would come into the kingdom. So um, he's speaking in there both of literal ethnic Israel, the nation, and of Gentiles, those scattered abroad who would come in later. A remarkable statement there. And John is just trying to make sure that when everybody understood that when Caiaphas said that Jesus would die and it was better for the nation and that Jesus would give his life for the nation, that yes, it was Israel, but not 
only Israel in God's understanding. So I hope that not only Israel ethnically, I think that's what it's being. I think that the vision there, when it refers to the nation, really has ethnic Israel, the Jewish people, the covenant descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what it has in mind there. Okay, thank you for that question there, Adonis. Uh, Carmel, or Carmel uh, on YouTube gives this question. At the Last Supper, did Jesus and the disciples eat the Passover meal in haste with staff in hand as it says to do it in Exodus chapter 12? And then uh, here's the uh, verse, Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Carmel, that is a great question, and I can give you an answer to that. No, Jesus and his disciples did not eat the Passover as it was described in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, with a belt on their waist, sandals on their feet, and a staff in their hand, and they did not eat it hurriedly. Um, Now, you might say, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, were they disobeying God's command there in Exodus chapter 12? No. The rabbis had long interpreted that, and I think correctly so, that the command of Exodus chapter 12, verse 11 applied to Israel at the Exodus, at the first Passover when they were escaping Egypt. It did not apply to Israel once they came into the promised land. And certainly Jesus and disciples partook of of, uh, Passover in the promised land, in Jerusalem itself. The rabbis understood that you ate with your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand and your belt around your waist because you had to be ready to move. You were leaving out of Egypt and destined eventually for the promised land. That was not the case once they came into the promised land. So rabbis, and again, I think this is correct, said, now that we're in the promised land, chill out. (laughs) Eat the Passover reclining. Take it easy. Don't eat it in haste. Um, Eat it with your slippers on, so to speak. Be comfortable because now God has brought us into the promised land. When Jesus partook of Passover with his disciples, for centuries, the Jewish people had been receiving Passover, uh, reclining at tables, and not according to the commands of Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, which they, and I think properly, understood were for that moment of the original Passover, not for Israel to celebrate it in that particular way throughout all their history. Great question, Carmel. I hope that answered it for you. Next question comes from YouTube. Enahui says, hi from Newport, Washington. Do we have dominion over angels? Uh, can we dispatch them? Anyway, let me um, explain it like this. There's a couple different passages that people use to refer to these things. Now, I'll, I'll try to bring them together here for you. There are passages in Hebrews that talk about uh, believers receiving help and ministry from angels. It it says, uh, are they not speaking of angels? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? In other words, in some form, it is the job of at least some angels to help and serve and assist God's people. Okay, we have that. Now, if that's the only thing that the Bible told us about angels, then maybe somebody... uh, we could say is, uh, maybe in some sense we could say that believers have the right to kind of direct or have dominion over to dispatch them. But when you take a look at the scriptures in the bigger picture, believers are not the Lord of angels. God is. God dispatches angels on behalf of believers. So angelic beings, in some sense, at least some angelic beings, serve believers and are ministering spirits sent forth to help them. But 
nowhere do we really have the picture, not that I'm thinking of, at least. If I'm in error, somebody can point it out. But nowhere do we have the picture that we command them. God commands them on behalf of his people. So I think it can be an example of uh, maybe some spiritual pride, maybe sometimes a little bit of spiritual arrogance. I can command angels. Angels answer to me. I'm going to tell them what to do, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that that's the biblical way to approach it. Uh, so that's how I would say it. And I, I don't believe that we have. So we, we do understand and take the truth, the, the truth, because the Bible says it, that in some sense, there are some angels that are given to serve and help and minister on behalf of believers. But it doesn't mean that believers have authority over them. Now, I, I will say this. I'll add one more scriptural thought to the mix. In 1 Corinthians, Paul appeals to the fact that we will judge angels. Not that we do it right now. But when we are resurrected, when we are glorified with the Lord, part of our resurrection glory will be that we will be in some way above the angels. We will judge angels. But Paul in 1 Corinthians puts that in the future tense, not in the here and now. So I would discourage believers, very much so, from thinking, speaking, or acting as if they had dominion over angelic beings, that they could order angels to do this or that, and that uh, they could dispatch angels to do this or that. Listen, talk to God, and God will or won't dispatch angels as he sees fit. Hope that's helpful for you there, Anahui. Sheila from Facebook asks the question, do we have birthdays in heaven? <laughs> Sheila, what a great question. And Sheila, I'm going to give you an answer here. I think that's a wonderful question. I love thinking about heaven, what life's going to be like when we get to heaven. But let me give you an answer to that. Will we have birthdays in heaven? I don't have the slightest idea. I, I mean, look, who knows? Maybe, maybe... I. Okay, first of all, I don't know that time works the same way in heaven that it works here. I mean, who can really say? Who knows? Here, it's kind of easy. 365 days to a year, technically 365 and a quarter days to a year. You know, um, we know when our birthday comes, it's a revolution around the sun, all this business. We don't know how time works in heaven. Sometimes we speak of heaven as being timeless. I don't know if that's exactly true because there are some markers given to us regarding time. It talks about there being a half hour in heaven. Okay, well, that's some kind of marker of time. So we just don't know how time works in heaven. We don't know if there will be anniversaries of things. We don't know if there will be a cyclical calendar like that. And even if there was, would we remember the day of our birth in heaven? Maybe we would remember the day of our being born again, our second birth. Maybe we would remember the day that we came to heaven, a sort of a new beginning. Maybe we won't remember those things in heaven at all. I don't know. But I do know it's kind of hard to think about and to really talk about because we don't know how time works in heaven, in the eternal. So we have to be very measured in how we speak about that. But Sheila, I got to say, um, it's not often that I get questions I can say. I never thought of that one before. But Sheila from Facebook, I never thought about that before. Great question. Our next question comes from Daniel, also from Facebook. Delighted that we have some Facebook uh, viewers here with us here because we've just started doing this live Q&A on Facebook. Uh, previously, it was only on YouTube and available through the TWR360 website. God bless our friends at Trans World Radio 360. That's the online presence of our that great ministry that's been reaching the world for decades uh, through the ministry of sh shortwave radio and, of course, online through TWR360. Uh, but we're now we're also live streaming on Facebook. Now, Daniel asked this question. Can someone 
with the gift of tongues, exercise it whenever they choose? Or is it when the Spirit prompts us to do so, speaking in the context of private life use? Daniel, this is one of those questions that I think the scriptures only give us some, I I don't know, uh, some hints. There's no clear answer to that question, but there are hints given to us in scripture. And from those hints, I would say that yes, a believer who does uh, speak in tongues in their communication with God, Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I think it's verse 3, whoever speaks in an unknown, unknown tongue speaks not unto men, but unto God. Whatever the gift of tongues is, it's not fundamentally a tool for communication on a horizontal level between person and person. It's a tool of communication on a vertical level between the believer and the Lord. Whoever speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto men, but unto God. Now, it would seem that the hints in Scripture lean towards it being a gift that somebody who has the gift can use it whenever they please. Some spiritual gifts are like this. The gift of preaching, the gift of teaching, is essentially a gift that if someone has it, they can use it whenever they please. Uh, The gift of mercy is a gift that someone can use whenever they please. There are other gifts that are not like that. When I think of what the Bible describes as the gift of miracles or a gift of healing, uh, there's no indication scripturally that that's something that just resides in a person. I mean, if there was a person who had the genuine biblical gift of healing, I don't think that they could go into a hospital and just empty the whole thing out. We don't have any indication of that being the way that the disciples do. They use those gifts uh, in a particular situation as the Holy Spirit would lead them. Okay, but not every gift was like that. Some gifts seem to be, and I know this isn't the best terminology, somewhat resident, and other gifts seem to be more um, spontaneous based on what the Holy Spirit is doing in that particular moment. I would put the gift of tongues in the... uh, category of being uh, resident for a couple reasons. Remember when Paul said, uh, I thank my God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Now, again, that's a hint. It's not a clear statement, but kind of the indication from that is that Paul could speak in tongues whenever he pleased. Again, I'll admit it's not clear, but I think it's a hint. Here's another hint. Um, when Paul talks about the the gift of tongues in the sense of it being um, a tool of edification for the believer. I think that's another uh, indication. So I don't think that the gift of tongues is something that kind of God does to a person. It's sort of a resident gift, if I could use that awkward language. Uh, that someone has and can, uh, as they just simply walk in the Spirit, they can do it uh, as God would give them the ability to. Again, Ron, uh, um, Daniel, I'm just saying, the Scriptures don't speak to us very clearly on this, but the hints that we have uh, lead me to, to go on the side that it is sort of something of a resonant gift. Okay, um, next question comes from Jennifer from YouTube. says, in the Catholic Bible... Do they mention purgatory or stations of the cross? Where does that information come from? Okay, uh, Jennifer, in the Roman Catholic Bible, which for the most part is the same as the Bible that most Protestants would use. There are a few Protestants who use, but but it has um, added to it books that we would call the Old Testament Apocrypha. First and second Maccabees, Esdras, Wisdom of Solomon, and a couple other books. By the way, there are a few Protestants who also include those, uh, I would regard them as extra-biblical books. Some of them have historical or devotional value, but they're not on the par of Scripture. Um, There there are some Protestants who have those apocryphal books in there. Um, Jennifer, I'm not an expert on the apocrypha. I think that there's a few allusions to something like purgatory 
in some of the apocryphal books, but there's nothing clear. There's nothing uh, concrete or definite. So the idea of purgatory comes more from theological development in the Roman Catholic Church. It's not fundamentally a scriptural thing. It's not something that comes forth clearly from the scripture, such as the deity of Jesus Christ. No, it's something that comes forth over uh, years of theological, centuries of theological development. The Stations of the Cross, uh, I can't recite to you all the Stations of the Cross right now. Some of them describe clear biblical events. Others of them are things that just happened in tradition. But the arrangement and the order of the Stations of the Cross is nowhere spelled out in any Bible, uh, whether it be the Bible that most Protestants accept or the Bible including the Old Testament Apocrypha. Notice the New Testament is largely the same in Roman Catholic and in Protestant Bibles. The added books are belonging to the Old Testament, not to the New Testament. So uh, it doesn't affect the Stations of the Cross at all. The Stations of the Cross is, again, a traditional development of Roman Catholics. Uh, They're not delineated as the Stations of the Cross anywhere in the Bible, whether it be a Roman Catholic Bible or a Protestant uh, Bible. Okay, next question again comes from YouTube from Ron, who asks, in regards to preterism, do you believe it to be a heretical, aberrant teaching? Is there a place for partial preterism to be accepted in Christian doctrine? Okay, Ron, uh, let me speak to you again. I I want to be a little bit humble in my understanding here because, uh, you know, there are people who are far more developed and read on these subjects than I am, but I'll give you my understanding. Um, Ron, I would not regard preterism as heretical. Now, let me explain to you why. I reserve that term heresy, heretical. Sometimes I call it the H-bomb. I reserve it for grievous error that you will go to hell if you believe this. If you believe this, you are so divergent from biblical teaching, from the gospel of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do for us, especially what he did at the cross and in his resurrection. You're so far away from that that if you believe this, you will go to hell. I reserve heresy for that. Now, you use the second word, aberrant. I do believe preterism is aberrant. I believe it's it's um, incorrect. Now, there's varieties and degrees of preterism. Some people believe in full preterism, and just to kind of give a little bit of background, full preterism would believe that everything that Jesus spoke of in the Olivet Discourse, uh, which we primarily take to be Uh, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, although there's also some rendering of it in the Gospel of Luke as well, but let's just talk about Matthew chapter 24 and 25, that everything Jesus predicted in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 was fulfilled in Jerusalem of 70 AD. That's full preterism. Partial preterism, again, this is to my understanding, I'm not so interested in having a uh, a massive command of this subject, but partial preterism says most of what Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 was fulfilled in 70 AD when the Romans conquered Jerusalem. Now, you could say, I can anticipate this uh, statement being taken out of context to my harm, but I don't really care. You could say that in some ways I am a partial preterist because I think that in some sense, of course, what Jesus had to say in the Olivet Discourse had application and had some kind of fulfillment in AD 70 when the Romans conquered Jerusalem. But but I don't think what happened in uh, AD 70 
comes anywhere close to fulfilling what Jesus said would happen in the Olivet Discourse. But, but in some sense, it foreshadowed it. It was a foreshadowing and a partial fulfillment of those things. So, I believe that that's a wrong teaching. And I guess if you want to say wrong in the sense of being aberrant, yes, I would not describe it as heretical, again, because I'm working, rather than be right up front about my definitions, I regard heresy as something that if someone believes this, they are going to hell. If someone teaches this and you believe it, you're going to go to hell for believing what that teacher says. I, I am much more reserved in my um, use of the term heretic than I think maybe some other people are. But that's I just try to be upfront with that. So, Ron, I hope that helps you there. Um, again, whatever place there would be for partial preterism to be accepted in Christian doctrine, I, I think it's in the recognition that what Jesus spoke about in the Olivet Discourse certainly in some sense was foreshadowed or fulfilled in a limited way in 70 AD, but just not completely. There is still a, a much greater and a perfect fulfillment to come. Okay, next question comes from Zach from YouTube. Where does a believer go directly after they die? Do they go straight to heaven or do they wait for the rapture? Zach, uh, they go straight to heaven. Paul said it very clearly that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It isn't to go into soul sleep. It isn't to go into suspended animation. Now, the body of the deceased believer may await its resurrection, and, and there is a sense in which that resurrection of the body may still be future for the believer who's gone to heaven. Again, we're talking about how heaven connects with and intersects with time here on this earth. We don't always know all the answers to that question. But what I'm just saying is that even if the bodily resurrection waits for the end of the age, that person's soul or spirit is with the Lord because we are more than our bodies and that immaterial part of our being, soul, spirit, whatever specific term you want to use, that is with the Lord. Paul said it very plainly, very clearly. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you shall be with me in paradise, not waiting for future resurrection. I could go on and on, give other examples, but no, we go to be with the Lord even if our body awaits a coming resurrection. Another question from YouTube comes from Jeanette, who asks, how did Abraham and Lot immediately know in Genesis chapter 17 and 19 that the men who came to visit were angels? And was it Jesus who visited Abraham or the father in Genesis chapter 17 and 18? Jeanette, this is a great question. Um, the question simply uh, it can be answered like this. Abraham knew that these were angelic beings because of the wings that were on their back. No, I'm joking. They didn't have wings. My question back to you, Jeanette, would simply be, how do we know that Abraham knew that they were angelic beings? Or Lot, for that matter. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but how do we know? I'm going back through my mental concordance, thinking through those chapters in Genesis chapter 17 and 18, and I don't see, I don't remember, nothing calls to my mind immediately something that says Abraham knew he was speaking to angelic beings. Now, when the two angelic beings went on and Abraham was left alone with the Lord, he spoke to him as if he was God. So Abraham knew that that was the Lord. And by the way, that was an appearance of Jesus Christ. Understand this, Jeanette, that... Jesus is God made manifest or visible, not the Father. The Father fulfills that aspect spoken of of God, that God is invisible, that no man has seen. God is spirit. That's the Father. The Son has revealed God. 
whether it was in the incarnation, beginning at Nazareth and conception, born at Bethlehem and walking this earth uh, for those 33 years, or whether it was in pre-incarnate appearances of God scattered throughout the Old Testament. When God appears in physical human form, it's Jesus Christ, either pre-incarnate or at the incarnation. Now, Lot would have had some reason to believe that these were angelic beings because of the supernatural power that they displayed, but not at first. So, Jeanette, I'm kind of thinking that Abraham didn't necessarily know that those two men were angels, although later he knew that it was the Lord that he spoke to when the two moved on, and that Lot didn't know at first that these were angelic beings, though later on he probably figured it out. There was nothing distinctive, but in their actions or in their self-revelation, how they appeared made no difference. They didn't have wings. They didn't leave behind them a trail of feathers. Uh, They looked like regular human beings. Connected to the idea in the book of Hebrews, where the author of the epistle to the Hebrews tells us that we should uh, show hospitality and entertain strangers because by doing this, some people have shown hospitality or entertained angels without knowing it. So that's something else to keep in mind with that, Jeanette. Excuse me for a moment. Next question comes from Bob, who wants to know who the bobblehead is today. That bobblehead over my left shoulder is none other than Catherine Von Bora Luther, Katie Von Bora, Martin Luther's dear wife, Katie Von Bora, who, according to historical record, was quite a woman, an amazing woman, and uh, really was an amazing blessing uh, to Martin Luther and true partner with him in ministry. Uh, What a blessing that is when a man has a woman who can be a true partner, and if I could say if a woman has a man who can be a true partner in what God has called her to do as well. Uh, so yes, th- this is the person depicted by that bobblehead. I got that bobblehead at, uh, I'm pretty sure I got it at, uh, man. Okay. It was either at Eisenach where, um, the Wartburg is Luther's fortress where he hid out for, uh, uh many months and translated the new Testament into German but it also could have been at the Luther House in uh, Wittenberg, probably at Eisenach. Um, okay, so thank you for that question, Bob. Facebook question comes from Nick. Should pastors identify certain false teachers and charlatans by name in order to warn the flock? I think there are examples where Paul named false teachers, if I'm not mistaken. Nick, you're absolutely correct. There are examples where Paul named false teachers. Absolutely. Uh, Demas is the one that comes to mind immediately. There were a few other ones. But here's the thing that complicates it a little bit, Nick. There are also places where Paul did not identify specific wrong doctrines with names. For example, in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, I believe, He talks about certain men from Judea who came to Antioch and started causing trouble, uh, including trouble with Peter and Barnabas and some other people. Paul never tells us who those certain men from Judea were. Never. They had names. Paul knew who they were. It's not like these were strangers or anonymous people to Paul, but he doesn't point out who they were. And and there's a few other places where Paul... uh, deals with doctrinal issues in churches without specifically naming the people who are promoting these doctrinal errors or problems. So Nick, this is what I would just simply say to you, and to especially any pastor out there would listen to this, I would say, there is a time for pointing out the name and naming names of uh, false teachers and charlatans, And there's a time and place to not specifically call people out by name, but speak in general, either leaving people deliberately unnamed or just talking about their ideas. You have to be led by the Holy Spirit. I think there's something wrong if a person is 
always naming names. And there's something wrong if a person is never naming names. It just needs to be done in a spirit-led basis because in the New Testament, we have examples of both. Isn't it interesting, and I'm just I'm going through the Gospels in my mind, nowhere do we learn the names of any of the scribes or Pharisees that opposed Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Isn't that interesting? So, uh, again, um, we have accounts, we have instances of both. Therefore, we need to use the Holy Spirit guiding us and wisdom along the way to know when it's appropriate to name false teachers and charlatans and when it's better to either leave them unnamed or just speak about their ideas. Thank you for that question there, Nick. YouTube brings us a question from David. What's the strongest passage of prophecy that can be used to prove the Bible is inspired? What is a text even the critical scholars can't dispute? For me, it is the 77s of Daniel. Okay, David, um, that's true, but you, you need to understand that there is a fair amount of controversy over the chronology of Sir Robert Anderson, which brings the 77s down to the exact day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. Um, I, I can't say with absolute certainty that the calculations of Sir Robert Anderson uh, in his book, The Coming Prince, 100, 150 years ago, something like that, I, I can't say with absolute certainty that those calculations are correct, but I, I do believe, I think what John Walford says about them, that they haven't been categorically disproven. So they may very well be true. I think that if you want to use prophecy to show the inspiration of the Bible, some great places to start is, number one, the prophecies concerning the coming and ministry of Jesus. I, I think that that's, no doubt, the best place to operate from. These prophecies that concern the coming and the ministry of the Messiah and how amazingly they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you're looking for something a little more esoteric, the prophecies of the destruction of Tyre and Sidon, its sister city, in Ezekiel were specifically and amazingly fulfilled. And the prophecies in Daniel chapter 11 about the kingdoms and empires that would succeed the Babylonian empire are also so impressive that most um, most scholars who don't believe the Bible's inspired by God insist that they had to be written after the fact. So I'll give you those three, David. Number one, the dozens of prophecies having to do with the coming and ministry of Jesus Christ. Number two, the prophecies of Tyre and Sidon in Ezekiel. Look, I, I can't remember the exact chapters. You can look it up. Look at my commentary on EnduringWord.com to get a good idea of, um, of you know, how those prophecies were fulfilled. And then I would add also the prophecies that are fulfilled in, um, what's I going to say? Yeah, the prophecies fulfilled in Daniel's chapters 10 and 11 having to do with the succeeding kingdoms after the Babylonian kingdom. Okay, uh, next question comes from YouTube, from uh, Bereshit. Uh, what are your thoughts on dispensationalism? Well, look, Bereshit, I am a dispensationalist, although let me define dispensationalist. I believe that anyone who believes that there is a difference between Israel and the church is, in some sense, a dispensationalist. So, I believe there's a difference between Israel and the church. Now, if you take a look at the world of dispensationalism, man, it's a big world with a lot of, I'll say frankly, crazy ideas out there. 
So I would say, whoa, 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 please don't identify me with everybody who claims to be a dispensationalist. Some of those people are very strange in their understanding of the Bible. There are some dispensationalists who will tell you that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is not for believers today. It was only for Israel, according to the dispensations. I say, that's nuts. So, again, um, I am a dispensationalist. Understanding dispensationalism is just in that basic dividing line. Do you believe there's a difference between the church and Israel or not? If you do believe there's a difference between the church and Israel, you are in some sense, a di- you might all different kinds of dispensationalism, but you are in some sense a dispensationalist. If you don't believe there's a difference between the church and Israel, then you could say you're not a dispensationalist. Maybe you're a covenant theologian or something like that. So my thoughts on dispensationalism is that it is the way to make sense of the Bible in the most straightforward, plain speaking way. It's just the right way to understand the Bible. Letting the Bible speak for itself as much as possible without putting our own interpretations on it. I do not have confidence in what many of our Reformed brethren call covenant theology. I, I don't have confidence in that at all. I think it's, it's, um, I think it's trying to, uh, this may be a terrible metaphor, but the scriptural backing for covenant theology as explained by our Reformed brethren, the scriptural backing for that is tiny, minuscule, and they're hanging huge systems of theology on the tiniest scriptural foundation. I I liken it to trying to hang a piano from a nail that you pound in the wall. The the theological weight that they try to hang on the few biblical passages speaking about an overarching covenant of grace and works that God is working out through all eternity in his plan of the ages. I I don't see it. So I, I don't agree with the Reformed understanding of covenant theology, though I very much believe in God's unfolding plan expressed through the covenants in the scripture. But... Um, that's my thoughts on dispensational. I hope that's helpful for you there, Barry. From YouTube, we have a question from Barry who says, can you explain what I am means in the Hebrew and how is I am the name for God? Um, I am is simply a statement, Barry, to the best of my understanding of the existence and the self-existence of God. That God is an independent being not dependent upon anybody else. That, that he is the God of God, so to speak. That he is the ultimate. The, the first cause, the origin of all, the logos. I am. There, there was never a time I was not. All wrapped up in it is God's self-existence, his absolute uniqueness, his simplicity, God's um, uh, eternity. It's all wrapped up in that simple declaration uh, as it is in the Greek scriptures, ego, imai, I am. I exist. For me, for you and I, for any other being, for any angelic being, every we, we are all um, beings that depend upon something else. There were times when we were not, but not God. He's eternal. He is the I am and always has been and always will be. Um, it also has a sense of, of, uh, of the becoming one. God is is to his people what his people need. And so there are many nuances and sort of flavors, so to speak, to that great declaration of God, I am in Exodus. And as Jesus took that title very consciously upon himself in John chapter eight, we see that as well. Then our last question comes from Facebook. Rocco, thank you for your question here, uh, brother. Um, Rocco says, why did Moses at 40 years old think that he would save Israel if God had not called him yet. Uh, Rocco, you're asking me to just give some speculation here, so let me speculate with you. Please, for a moment here, brother. We have pretty reliable tradition, doesn't say so exactly in the Bible, but from Josephus and other sources, that Moses was not only the adopted son of Pharaoh, the Bible tells us that, but that he was the crown prince of Egypt, that he was the one destined to take over 
when the present Pharaoh died. That being the case, you could see why Moses would think, well, when I take the throne over Israel as Pharaoh, over Egypt as throne, then I can deliver my people. So to me, that gives a very logical answer as to why Moses would think he would be Israel's deliverer, but after 40 years had still not done anything active to deliver them. It's because he was waiting to take the throne of Egypt. Maybe if you want to be a little more reserved, waiting for the current Pharaoh to die until he could enact the deliverance that was on his heart for Israel. Hope that helps you there, Rocco. God bless you, brother. Thank you. Well, folks, that was our last question for today. And I am so pleased that you could join us. We will be back uh, next week with another question and answer time, God willing. And if we live, um, hope this is helpful for you. And I pray that God blesses you in this new year. This is the first broadcast we're doing of 2022. And I pray for God's rich blessing upon you. I'm so pleased and just sort of thrilled about what God is doing through our work at Enduring Word. And um, we pray that God has his hand of blessing upon you as well. Thank you for joining us today. God bless you. And uh, God willing, we'll see you next week. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.